This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. As our world grows more interconnected, user security, when there are enough users, can become national security. And personally, I think really the way to go with this is for the larger tech companies, especially U.S. companies that touch international issues, to work closer with the U.S. government to better help mitigate these threats. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Suzanne Spaulding, the Interim Director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. As we continue to celebrate Women's History Month, I shared the mic with girl security scholar Kelly Huang, who interviewed Winona DeSombre, a cybersecurity professional who is also a dual Harvard-Georgetown University Master's in Public Policy and JD candidate. They discussed cyber defenses on an international stage, as well as different pathways to a career in cybersecurity. Kelly, we're so excited to have you today on Smart Women, Smart Power. And before I let you get started with your interview, I want to first find out a little bit about you and what prompted your interest in cyber defense, particularly and cyber defense as it applies in the international context. Absolutely, Suzanne. So I would say my interest in the national security sector began when I studied abroad with a program called NSLIY, which is the National Security Language Initiative for Youth. And then after that, I had this opportunity to become a fellow with Girls Security, where I learned about the various sectors of national security and even more specifically cybersecurity. When I came into college this first semester, I realized there was so much to learn about the cyber world and how much it relates to public policy and to the current events today. That made me realize that I really wanted to learn more about cyber, cyber defense, and what it meant to be a role model in the cyber world. So I'm happy to be here today and learn more about cybersecurity. Excellent. Well, we are too. and I know we're going to learn a lot. So as you were looking into these issues, how did you come across Winona's work and what made you decide that she was the one you wanted to interview? Yeah, so I found out about Winona's work through Girl Security because she had a lot of work with Girl Security fellows and mentors. And I was really interested in the fact that she was a dual degree candidate at Harvard Kennedy School and Georgetown Law School. And she was pursuing these two interdisciplinary fields. She was studying both the CS side or the computer science side of cybersecurity, but also the international relations side and how that relates to the world today. For me here at college, I'm hoping to pursue a degree in intelligence and cyber operations, which also combines those two interdisciplinary fields. And that really drew me to wanting to talk with Winona because I felt that she would have a lot of interesting insight on current events relating to both the cyber world and the international relations world today. Great. Well, we are very grateful that you chose someone we are really looking forward to hearing from and hearing your conversations. So Kelly, thanks so much for taking on this role today. And Winona, thank you for the conversation as well. And now over to you guys. Welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast, Winona. We are so excited to talk with you today. You are a dual degree candidate at Harvard Kennedy School and Georgetown Law School. And I would like to start there. What led you to pursue a career in the interdisciplinary fields of cyber policy and law? Did you face any challenges as a woman emerging in these fields? Well, thank you so much for having me, Kelly. It's wonderful to be on the podcast today. As for your question, 
I always wanted to do policy work. I think that that's <laughs> not a regular occurrence for people who want to go into cybersecurity. But I studied international relations in undergrad and actually focused on China-U.S. relations. I actually fell into computer science. I took it as an elective for a science credit and realized that I could merge these two really interesting fields together to do some good. And so fundamentally, now that I've found that cyber policy is the field that I want to pursue, I realized that policy and law are inextricably connected. And having knowledge of all three fields, so policy, law, and cybersecurity as it pertains to industry experience, actually gives me a lot of unique insights into each of the fields. As for challenges, I love my field, don't get me wrong, but there's definitely a reason why women drop out of tech and, and cybersecurity fields in general. The field can be very insular at certain points. People have dismissed my expertise because I'm a relatively younger woman and prevented me from joining certain trust circles sometimes, but there's definitely a growing and really just incredible set of communities for women in the space. And I'm really excited about that. You just have to find them. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your honesty about your experiences in these fields. I think it's so important that, especially for my generation, and as more young women enter these fields, it's so important for them to kind of find that connection with other women who have already embraced that field and gone through that path. Yeah, absolutely. For my next question, I wanted to ask a little bit more about your experience at school. At the Harvard Belfer Center, you co-authored a report on the National Cyber Power Index, where you looked at seven objectives that countries use to pursue their cyber means. Can you walk me through these objectives, and can you tell me more about how they are so relevant to the state? Yeah, absolutely. So the impetus for the Belfer Center Cyber Power Project is that when we look at how individuals talk about cyber and cyber power specifically, they tend to focus on offense specifically just cyber attacks, and they focus not just on cyber attacks, but also how sophisticated they are, how much effort has gone into doing XYZ, writing this malware versus that one, how many technical evasion techniques they're using. And a couple of us looked at that and said, well, it's, it's a lot more than that. <laughs> Fundamentally, the main point is that when people try to talk about cyber power, really this power concept should measure how good a nation is at achieving national goals in cyberspace, because cyber is much more than just offensive power, right? And so we came up with seven different objectives, which we saw different nation states trying to accomplish in cyberspace. So those are surveilling and monitoring domestic groups. So internal censorship tools, internal domain blocking, different spyware that you're using to monitor minority groups. And that's, that's one. Number two would be strengthening and enhancing national cyber defenses. Number three would be controlling and manipulating the information environment. So this has some censorship component, but also has to do with disinformation. So not just controlling your internal in internet, but also how other nations and, and internet users view you externally. Number four would be foreign intelligence collection for national security purposes, of course, which marries well with number five, which is commercial gain or enhancing domestic industry growth. So this has to do with the economic espionage aspect or even just trying to grow your domestic tech sector. You have number six, which is destroying or disabling an adversary's infrastructure and capabilities. So this can range from an offensive destructive cyber attack or just simple DDoS hacktivism and, and things like that. And then finally, you have defining international cyber norms and technical standards. So are you a member of certain UN groups and whatnot? So all of these seven objectives are priorities of very different countries. Some countries may want to prioritize surveillance or controlling and manipulating the information environment where other countries want to focus more on norms. So it provides a overarching framework from which to think about cyber power. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing. And I appreciate how you made it really relevant to 
even regions outside of the China-U.S. relationship. Now I want to move forward to your work experience and talk more about that sector. Winona, you previously worked as a security engineer at Google's Threat Analysis Group, where you conducted research on nation-state threats against Google users. It is often debated how frequently big tech companies should collaborate with the government and to what extent the government should regulate technological use. How should companies like Google and state organizations like the Department of Defense approach security matters? Is one more suited than the other for certain issues? This is a really deep question, Kelly, and I really appreciate you asking it. I want to say that this is just my personal opinion, but I think that there's two different types of security at play here. There's security as in the nation's security versus security as in user security. So the U.S. government is ultimately tasked with protecting our nation's security. Life and liberty are two of the three things mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. But technology companies are incentivized to prioritize user security. And security is never good for a company because it will prevent users from wanting to engage with a company's products. Also, having a company's product be used to harm a user is truly heartbreaking. But as our world grows more interconnected, user security, when there are enough users, can become national security. So nation states hack into private companies or abuse private company services to hack individuals. Disinformation spread on private sector products can swing elections, as we've seen in the past. And personally, I think really the way to go with this is for the larger tech companies, especially U.S. companies that touch international issues, to work closer with the U.S. government to better help mitigate these threats. Communication on both sides, in my opinion, is, is really necessary here. I really couldn't agree more. For girl security, we talked a lot about the different sectors and levels of national security. So we talked about cybersecurity, we talked about climate security, and even personal security. We looked at how security looked like at these different levels, and I really appreciate the fact that you brought up this line of communication between both sides at the tech side for these big tech companies as someone who came from the Silicon Valley, and also at the nation side, looking at the federal government and how they handle national security threats. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's really important, too, that I love that girl security does delineate between these different types of issues because it's important to have nuance in this field, right? It can't just be about one type of security because different parties, the private sector, the public sector, have different responsibilities and different incentives. And, and thinking about those incentives and how they structure policy is really, really important. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Now I want to move on to some more recent news. Today, we're witnessing a cyber battle between Russia and Ukraine. These distributed denials of service attacks have been aimed primarily at Ukrainian military and government sources, with the arrival of other hacker collectors like Anonymous declaring quote-unquote cyber war on President Putin. Many wonder about the role of the United States in this situation. Could you please explain to us why this international relationship is so valuable to the United States and what cyber defense measures, if any, should be taken? Yeah, this is a really interesting question, Kelly, because of how Ukraine stands within Europe. <laughs> the U.S. wants to protect the security of NATO allies around Ukraine and prevent Russia from waging a war of aggression against democracies like Ukraine. However, Ukraine is not in NATO. So from a cyber defense perspective, I think that the U.S. should ensure that our own defenses are shored up at home and that we have visibility into Russian actions in cyberspace, such that if they begin conducting operations related to the war, we can uncover it and out it publicly. The Biden admin actually did this already. They publicly called out a disinformation campaign Russia was planning prior to the Ukraine invasion that may have given Putin a uh, falsified or, or made up reason to invade Ukraine. And I think that by outing that operation quite publicly, the Biden administration put Putin's hands in a bind, so to speak. That really is an interesting take. There have also been numerous reports on volunteers joining the hacking battle. 
How should the education of cybersecurity, especially when it comes to ethical hacking, be enforced so that these volunteers are not mishandling well-intentioned defense efforts? Yeah, this is also a really interesting question, Kelly. I really appreciate you asking it. When it comes to volunteer hacking forces, I think that especially if volunteers choose to conduct offensive actions against the Russian government. So, I mean, that could be anything from sending malware to (laughs) Russian infrastructure or DDoSing Russian sites. Especially if these volunteers are from other countries, this actually could cause escalation and misinterpretation. While these individuals are not working on behalf of other countries, it's entirely possible that this could give a reason to the Russian government to interpret it that way and could escalate the issue. However, there have been more calls for defensive help, which I think that if people have the ability and bandwidth to help out are far more safe ways of participating and volunteering your resources. So this can be anything from writing detection rules on malware that has been leaked. So when the U.S. government put out that there was a piece of Russian malware that was targeting Ukrainian infrastructure and organizations, there was a big industry effort to actually try a to reverse that malware, figure out what it was doing, and then push out detection rules such that organizations in Ukraine could protect themselves, which I think is a really, really cool initiative and really cool to see the hacking community band together like that. Yeah, I liked how you brought up the sort of initiative to kind of backtrack on that issue because we learned a lot in my cybersecurity class on the three goals of information security. So this could look like prevention, detection, and recovery. And I think that last part is so easy to forget because a lot of cybersecurity stuff is focused on preventing and detecting all these malware issues, but also following up with the people and having these volunteers or just everyday people understand what it's like to also recover from this issue and having education, especially when it comes to like preventing and ethical hacking, having it be well-intentioned and in a way where it's not harmful to the state or counterproductive. Yeah. And I mean, recovery is such a hugely important part of that process, right? Like making sure that the organizations that have been victimized are able to move forward and still provide services to Ukrainian citizens or other users in Europe is the key part to ensuring some kind of normalcy, even in this you know, horrific time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So now I want to kind of switch over to your recent efforts in the cybersecurity sector. So recently, you had the opportunity to testify in front of Congress on China's cyber warfare capabilities. Among the recommendations you made for congressional action, which, if implemented, would have the most direct and measurable impact on the U.S. cyber defense field? I love this question, Kelly. And I think that especially when we're talking about China's cyber warfare capabilities, you know, to compare and contrast them to the United States, ultimately, like, Cybersecurity is inextricably linked to how much talent you have. So especially in U.S. cyber defense, the U.S. is looking to fill its short of approximately 300 to 400,000 cybersecurity jobs. But there's a, a worldwide shortage. And with engineering talent being as hard to find as it is, the U.S. government is held back by policies that discourage any engineers from coming into government service. So lack of upward mobility, non-competitive pay, long security clearance processing backlogs. Or to make matters worse, even if we were able to find engineering talent from abroad to bring them to the states, visa processing issues discourage this talent from coming to the U.S. all. It prevents these U.S. institutions from taking advantage of that talent. So ultimately, one of the recommendations that I made to the Congressional Commission 
was that Congress should loosen restrictions on contractors to hire foreign talent, either in the EU or elsewhere, expand the H-1B visa quota for cybersecurity and engineering talent, and double the CyberCore scholarship for service funding, which is a key piece of undergraduate and graduate level funding for students who want to try and figure out if cybersecurity is, is the right field for them. And then finally, this is something that I'm really passionate about, but there are people in industry who do want to serve government, but don't want to do that for the rest of their career. So if we expanded the U.S. digital service tour of duty model, so effectively web designers or software engineers who want to go do government projects can do so for two years and then go back into industry. If we expanded that to cybersecurity fields, I think that that would really give us an edge when it came to defending our nation's cyber domain. I really couldn't agree more, Winona. I really liked how you talked about expanding the visa process and expanding scholarship opportunities because oftentimes it feels like when it comes to cybersecurity and computer science and these very hard STEM fields, a lot of people are turned away about how difficult it is and how difficult it actually is to follow through with the entire learning process. They feel very isolated and they feel like this is not a field for them. Personally, I came into university as a business major. And it wasn't until I found out about the intelligence and cyber operations program that I really took an interest in cybersecurity. And I realized that this is actually a skill that needs to be cultivated and it was going to take time to get better at it. But once I learned about that, I realized how interested I was in this field and how much I wanted to take on these skills and apply it in the government sector. I really believe that if more people knew about the importance of cybersecurity, how fast of a growing industry it was, and also how relevant it is to so much of the modern issues and events going on today, it would really make a difference in not only the number of people interested in these fields, but also how much our national government invests in STEM education, in civic education, and even more importantly, how much cybersecurity would be a role in our policy recommendations today. It's really cool that you found cybersecurity even when you came into college thinking that you were going to do something else. And, you know, that's pretty similar to how I ended up in this field. And I think that there are so many people, especially women, that are turned off by what cybersecurity may look like on the outside, even though it touches all of these other fields. And, and I came in to industry realizing that understanding engineering and cybersecurity was a force multiplier in policy and law, which, which was the field that I originally wanted to go and do. And I think that the more people who can realize how important cybersecurity is, how cool engineering can be, they can take these skills and, and don't have to do engineering forever. They can go out and see how this field touches all of the things that they're interested in for the rest of their career. Absolutely. And I think this is also one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to you too, is because you came in with this mindset of wanting to do policy and law. And I'm still technically a pre-law student, but I really like how technology can kind of be that in-between solution to a lot of the problems that we are seeing today. Moving back to our conversation about the U.S. and China relations, in the scenario that China invades Taiwan, another cyber battle could begin in the future. Now, this may be premature, but what do you think are some of the lessons learned from the cyber attacks taking place in the Russia-Ukraine crisis? Yeah, so I'm very hesitant usually to apply the Russia-Ukraine dynamic to the China-Taiwan case, just because there's a lot of cultural nuance that gets lost, and my background is mostly on China-U.S. relations. And I'm also hesitant to assume that there would actually be a hot war in Taiwan, especially given how Hong Kong over the last decade didn't have a hot war despite multiple protests. And, and that was the last piece of territory that went so quickly and directly back under the Chinese regime. I will say that one way in which they're similar is that China and Russia do constantly target Taiwan and Ukraine respectively 
with cyber operations. You've seen a lot of disinformation targeting Taiwan from China that actually fairly succinctly followed the Russian playbook for disinformation post-2016. And then you see Russia targeting Ukraine, not just with disinfo, but also destructive or disruptive cyber attacks. So if there were a hot war between China and Taiwan, or if China were to invade Taiwan, I suppose we could say that there would be an aggressive ramp up of cyber operations prior to that. But I do think that the speculation is pretty premature. Thank you for touching on that. I'm personally, as someone who has a lot of family relatives from that region of like China and Taiwan and Hong Kong, it's very interesting to me, but also scary to see how much of those cyber tensions are taking place and seeing what happened with the Russian-Ukraine situation. Although, as you said, it's not necessarily comparable. It is important for a lot of these nations to kind of take aware of the importance of cyber defense here today, because you just never know when another cyber attack could happen. Yeah. And I, I also think that fundamentally, because cyber is so inextricably connected to the rest of geopolitics, it's also really important to see the economic and, and geopolitical realities of these two countries, either Russia versus Ukraine or China and Taiwan, right? Because Taiwan for the last couple of years has talked about a quote unquote silicon shield against China. This referring to the, the fact that Taiwan is one of the biggest, if not the biggest set of semiconductor manufacturers and exporters in the world. And China currently doesn't have that capability. So this silicon shield may or may not hold for much longer, but it's something that the Taiwanese government does believe prevents more Chinese aggression than, than would happen otherwise. Absolutely. I wanted to kind of bring the attention back into the United States and ask you, why should the United States pay attention to what is happening in Ukraine from a cyber defense lens? Feel free to also expand on how the U.S. should pay attention to what's happening in China and Taiwan as well. Yeah, this is a hugely important question, Kelly. So thanks again for asking. This is, in, in my view, the first hot conflict by a major geopolitical adversary, referring to Russia, that has had such a publicly present cyber angle. I do want to stress that it's a horrifying time, and thankfully there haven't been any publicly attributed, truly destructive cyber-enabled attacks yet. But when it comes to the cyber domain, seeing how an adversary is using the domain during wartime is incredibly useful for intelligence value, especially if Putin doesn't back down and continues any sort of escalatory action and rhetoric. It's also really interesting to see from a U.S. policy perspective how certain levers that the Biden administration is using, such as what some people in the field like to call attribution diplomacy, so outing certain Russian acts of aggression in cyberspace, is working not to deter Russia, but, but potentially make their actions far less effective than they would be otherwise. In the future, the United States can learn from Russia's actions as well as the effects that U.S. policy has made within cyber or other adversaries such as, as China in the future. To conclude, I wanted to ask you to summarize the U.S.'s current stance on cyber defense. How can we best integrate more young women and minorities in the cybersecurity field so that the U.S. can bolster its cyber defenses? Is it comparable on an international scale or what is it exactly the best that we could hope for? What a question to conclude on. So I would say that fundamentally there's a worldwide cybersecurity personnel shortage, right? And the U.S., I believe, has a really interconnected network of private public partnerships, information sharing, and has also started to experiment with some cost imposition on adversaries. So thinking, indicting hackers that are targeting the United States, putting private surveillance companies on the entities list, other forms of policy actions that are, are really putting the cost of hacking the U.S. government back on the adversary or hacking U.S. infrastructure, critical infrastructure companies on the adversary. I think 
the government and the private sector, at least when it comes to trying to integrate more women and minorities in the cybersecurity field, needs to showcase the wide varieties of fields in cybersecurity. So it's not just penetration testing, it's cyber law, policy, research, technical writing, social engineering, or, or training that make all of these spaces more welcoming to women and minorities. Scholarships and fellowship opportunities for new grad populations would be incredible, especially for first-gen students, so students who are the first of their families to come to college, as well as women and minorities. And then also bringing in scholarships and fellowship opportunities for people in tangential fields. So if you are in law and you want to understand cyber a little bit more, giving them the training and the ability to understand enough technical nuance to be dangerous, so to speak. I think all of these educational policies would be a, a huge first step. I really liked how you touched on being a first gen and encouraging more young women minorities in this field because I personally am a first generation college student and I'm a woman of color and I'm really excited to encourage more of these people from these backgrounds to take on the cybersecurity role and to kind of step up and see the various sectors in which cyber integrates with public policy, with law, with political science and all these different fields. I also agree that if there were more scholarship and fellowship opportunities, a lot of these low-income students would also be able to take the chance and kind of switch out or, or add on cyber into what they are currently studying. I really don't have much else to elaborate on other than I really think that if we're on an international scale, including the language element as well, having cyber and policy be implemented in various different languages and implementing that in their own nation states would also increase more people to join the cybersecurity field. Yeah, or even expanding the definition of what a cybersecurity scholarship could entail. I find that there are a ton of engineering-based scholarships, but not very many for cyber policy, for example. And this could capture far more people that maybe thought that they weren't the engineering type, which is a, a heartbreaking stereotype that I hope we are able to also change because I would call myself an engineer, <laughs> even though I'm in the law field. And it would bring them more towards being open to, to exploring cybersecurity. Absolutely. And I personally also don't really consider myself an engineer just yet because I've only what? taken maybe one <laughs> or two coding classes. But I do hope that in the future, after gaining a lot more knowledge and going to more office hours and having more support in this field, that I can really combine cybersecurity with other policies such as in the international relations and foreign service sector, and also just making cyber more accessible to people, especially women of color and minorities. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, Kelly, it's so inspiring that you're able to come on this podcast and have a deep understanding of, of kind of what you want to do in the field at your age and at your journey in college. I feel like there aren't very many women that are able to do that the way that you are. So thank you so much for inviting me. And it's such a lovely opportunity to be able to have this conversation with you. Of course. Thank you so much, Winona, for being with us here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.